Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Adam Bully. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Brain and Mind Center in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney in Australia and the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. In his research, he uses the tools of evolutionary and cognitive psychology to study the mind and human behavior. Specifically, he investigates the evolution, development, and psychological mechanisms of, of imagination, foresight, decision-making, and emotion. And today we're going to focus on his book, uh, The Invention of Tomorrow, A Natural History of Foresight, written together with Thomas Sudendorf and Jonathan Redshaw. So, Dr. Bully, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to have you on. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. So, let's start. Perhaps it's good to start with the evolution of foresight, uh, going all the way back to our evolutionary history. But just before that, um, what is foresight as a uh, psychological capacity? What are we really talking about here? Yeah, so... What it's not is the, you know, clairvoyance and fortune telling involved in knowing exactly what the future holds. It's nothing mystical uh, or anything like that. Uh, what it is instead, and how we discuss it in the book, is a cognitive capacity that enables you to uh, imagine the future and organize current decision making and action according to what you've foreseen. Uh, and so this is a, it's a cognitive capacity that's really comprised of many other psychological mechanisms uh, and cognitive processes that together give you access to um, imagined futures, things that might happen uh, in your personal future. Um, and that's a very powerful ability because it also enables you to prepare for what the future holds. So you're already sort of alluding to the functions it might have, it might serve from an evolutionary perspective, but uh, how has it evolved then? Do we know enough about that or not? Yeah, I mean, there's clues about how it evolved. It's not uh, by any means completely settled. It's, uh, you know, it's actually a very, um, it's a complicated ability and it's one of the things that, that uh, as we argue in the book, might be, that might set us apart from other animals. And so what we do in the book is kind of take the starting point at, at the uh, the split from the lineage leading to modern humans and leading to modern chimpanzees around six, seven million years ago. And we kind of trace the evolution of the ability um, from that point. Um, now, because it's kind of there are multiple different components involved uh, in foresight, it's not just one completely, you know, um, specific ability. Uh, the way that you trace this is through basically lines of evidence, including, you know, things like technologies, hard stone, stone tool axes. You can find some changes in morphology. There's other other lines of evidence that you kind of put together and get a sense of how this uh, capacity evolved in our hominin ancestors. Uh, and so maybe I could just uh, one of the things to to sort of say first is basically along the lines that you just mentioned with with the um, functions of the capacity. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it. Foresight is incredibly useful because it enables you to prepare for threats and opportunities long in advance of them actually occurring to you. So it opens the window of preparation further than other animals uh, can, which enables you to do things like prepare a tool that you don't need now, but that will be useful for when you face some threat in the future. And so something like a spear that you, know, you have to make in advance uh, is unlocked by foresight. And it's um, it's it's not it's not just the 
capacity to actually like imagine the product that and then set about making it it's also things like the ability to envisage ex being expertise uh, having the expertise to create such an item and then working towards building it uh so things like practice which is again unlocked by the ability to envisage yourself having a skill that you don't currently have but that later would would pay off so that's the kind of function side of it and then as for the actual trajectory by which it came about some of the earliest signs of increasing foresight that our ancestors may uh, have had comes in the form of for example preparing um, rocks and other debris in advance of when it was needed to throw at potential uh, predators so that you know this is again this is fairly speculative when you go back that far but uh, when while you see chimpanzees will throw you know objects at aggressors and they do the throw in fits of display and that kind of thing um, what you don't see them doing is like really stockpiling, at least in the wild, you don't see them stockpiling to, you know, debris and rocks and stuff in advance so that when they get attacked, they have a uh, ammunition to, mm -hmm. to throw. Um, so, I mean, we could take, take it in a few different directions, but that's kind of one of the early starting points. Eventually you see things like the development of uh, stone hand axes that have sharp edges. They're very sophisticated. They're actually very difficult to make yeah. and they were transported for repeated use. So that's a really important point because it's not just anymore, you know, stockpiling something that already exists or uh, using a tool once and then throwing it away, which is what you see, you know, you do see other animals using tools, but then they leave them. Instead, it's making a tool, keeping it on you and then transporting it for repeated use in the future. Uh, and then going further into the further through time as you get closer and closer to Homo sapiens um, and up to anatomically modern humans, things like the control of fire. Uh, things like sophisticated hunting plans, composite tools where you put together multiple pieces as opposed to just chipping away pieces from a flake. All of these technological advances are sort of evidence of an increasing time horizon in our ancestors mm -hmm. as they got more and more control over the future. So uh, you're talking about an increasing time horizon. Is it that over the course of our evolutionary history, and that might include cultural evolution, I don't know, you, you will tell me, but uh, our uh, time frame so, uh, sort of has increased. I mean, have, uh, over time, have we been able to look more in more or to plan more and more into the future or not? I think that's, you know, that's very plausible, but it, it's a fairly crude way of, of putting it. Like uh, on, on some level that must have happened because if you look at the, uh, the the common ancestor that we share with chimpanzees, that was probably a fairly chimpanzee-like creature. It wasn't, obviously chimps have been evolving for the same amount of time since then as we mm -hmm. have. But um, but yeah, th these abilities to some degree have, have, yeah, there's been an increasing capacity to control the future. Uh, however, as I mentioned already, it's it's actually really multifaceted ability. So being able to imagine the future involves, yes, it involves extending that further and further out in time, mm -hmm. but it also has other features, like, for example, the ability to entertain multiple mutually exclusive versions of the future. Mm -hmm. So that's a realization. That's not so much extending the time horizon out, but it's a kind of conceptual uh, advance that enables you to realize that the future doesn't just move off into the distance instead it's ours to write uh it contains multiple mutually exclusive ways that it could play out and we can steer our lives into one or another uh, of those alternative futures um so that's just an example of the of the kind of conceptual uh, toolkit mental toolkit that that would have um, been really important in the evolution of this ability 
Do you think that uh, life history theory might be important here in the sense that perhaps uh, when it comes to understanding individual variation into uh, how much far people look into the future, I mean, if people uh, develop in conditions that uh, are not that great, let's say, to put it in simple terms, they might have uh, faster life history, fast-paced life history strategies, and, and so they only plan for the short term and of people who have slow-paced uh, slow life history strategies plan far ahead uh, so in, for the long term. But I mean, per perhaps that's, uh, uh, thinking about it in another way, perhaps that's not so important because uh, both things are foresight, but just with different time horizons in the mind, right? Because short term for humans, it's still... Uh, foresight, even if it's just uh, a matter of weeks, uh, a year, or something like that. Or... Yeah, it's interesting. I, the kind of foresight that we're talking about in the book is really the way I tend to think of it is as a universal human trait that develops, okay. you know, basically across across all humans. It's a it's a shared mm -hmm. universal trait, and it's very okay. domain general. So it can it's it's really can be used for all kinds of things. Uh, mm -hmm. You can use the same foresight to, you know, imagine what you're going to do next week, uh, to imagine a skill that you need to develop, like learning the piano, or to decide that actually waiting for a later payoff is uh, not logical, and instead you should get what you can now. So that that's all different uses of the same mm -hmm. mental time machine. This is a, a metaphor that we use to refer to this ability to kind of traverse the span of time in your mind's eye. Um, but of course, with that said, there are like individual differences in how people choose to basically steer those mental time machines. Uh, and those those differences, you know, basically because it's such a domain general ability, those differences manifest everywhere. Um, and also because this uh, the ability to foresee the future and act to and act accordingly is so domain general, it can be used for so many different functions. It's also partly responsible for a lot of the differences in things like skills that you see people acquire. Because the uh, use of, of foresight in this case, you know, I might foresee that what I really need to do is figure out how to play the piano better. And you might decide that instead what you really need to figure out how to do is learn how to change a tire or whatever, you know, choose, choose your skill and then work towards that. Um, as for life history theory itself, I, I, I've become kind of this this might take us on too much of a tangent but a little bit skeptical about the the use of life history theory uh, applying that to individual differences variation in adult humans so mm. yes life history theory is a is a useful kind of toolkit for understanding biological differences between species for example um, but my colleague Brendan Zeech has made some very compelling arguments uh, at the University of Queensland has made some very compelling arguments over the last few years um, that applying that same toolkit to individual differences variation, which has a different mechanism than biological speciation differences, right. uh, can, can be an error. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, you know, the details there are, are pretty complicated, but um, and we, we can get into it if you like, but basically I would direct listeners to Brendan Zeech's like, really interesting uh, arguments about the, um, the, 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 the use of life history theory 
to understand individual differences in humans. Yeah. Well, I will definitely add him mm. to my list and see if I can mm. get him on to talk about that. Because over the years, I've been talking about life history theory on the show several times, and that would be a very interesting insight to have here. Yeah, he's, it's an interesting one because he's definitely he actually acts as a kind of uh, a challenge. He, he, he presents various challenges to the kind of open, to the to the general use of life history theory, and so it might be an interesting person to talk to as a kind of counter counter argument or a counterweight mm -hmm. to some of those um, ideas. Uh, and I've certainly enjoyed talking to him over the years about this exact thing because I also, you know, I tended to think life history theory as applied to individual differences in um, in in adult humans was also quite useful. Um, these days, I, I tend not to couch things in that in that language, but to kind of come back to the the kind of question that you asked. Mm -hmm. For example, yes, I think it's actually very true that if people are in incredibly uncertain circumstances, you know, if they live in an environment that's quite harsh or hostile, then the the best idea in those situations can be to prioritize the present. You know, not to delay gratification for some later payoff yep. that you might not even be around to capitalize on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, the same kind of logic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, but let's get then into child development. So what do we know about the child development of foresight? I mean, is there a particular age at which children start thinking more about the future or develop this capacity or is it there from the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, so the most um, intuitive link from what we were just talking about with regards to individual differences for, for people might be to think about something like the marshmallow test, which many of your uh, listeners, I'm sure, would have heard of where you know, uh, give a child gratification. A, yeah, exactly. You give a child a, a marshmallow, you say, if you can wait for, you know, wait a bit, I'll give you a second one. Yeah. And then you leave the room, the child starts struggling with temptation. Okay, fine. Uh, but obviously, in that case, there's enormous amount of individual variation in how long the children will wait for the second marshmallow. And in some sense, that's thought of as a, a difference in the capacity to think ahead or to execute self-control, something like that. Uh, but on the other hand, it can actually just to come just to make a, a kind of final point about what we mentioned before, could also be a result of the circumstances that you find yourself in. So if you, you know, Celeste Kidd and her colleagues added a slight twist to the marshmallow paradigm where they broke a promise to the children before they started the test. And of course, what you find is that the children will wait far less long for the second marshmallow if the experimenter has made, has broken a promise first, uh, which shows basically just clearly that it's not so much about uh, capacity differences, even in young children, like, you know, four or five years old. It's a there is an awareness of the environmental uncertainty that can lead to different priorities about the future uh, and shift those priorities. But as for um, the capacity to imagine personal future events that might occur, uh, by around age four, there seems to be quite an important um, developmental transition where young children can do things like prepare for multiple mutually exclusive versions of the future. They can secure a tool to solve a problem in a different room from where the tool is found. So for example, if you're moving between different places, and you need to take something with you to secure a prize that is currently out of sight. Um, you see that kind of around that same age. And it's also around the same age that children start to develop a kind of more sophisticated theory of mind. Uh, and so around age four, you see, start to see some of these important transitions. But of course, that's not to give the impression that it just, you know, turns on all of a sudden. Instead, 
all these different aspects kind of come online at different times and of course from from at the very start they can't think ahead at all basically they're they're kind of uh, they're incredibly helpless like newborn infants uh, but they they develop things like working memory capacity which you need to be able to entertain different possibilities in the future uh, and that develops gradually over time but yes i would say by around around age four is a kind of important um, marker mm -hmm. By the way, uh, taking into account what we've just talked about up until this point in the interview, um, I mean, I've interviewed, for example, Daniel Everett, the linguist, and he, right. he's done work on the Piraha, and I know that uh, the Piraha are very controversial for linguists, anthropologists, psychologists, and so on, because it sort of, in a way, questions, in the case of linguists, the... Uh, the Chomskyan approach to sure. language and universal grammar and all of that, but uh, it's not that I I want to ask I I don't want to ask you about that specifically here, but he he makes a, a very interesting claim that is that the Piraha in the Amazon do not really talk about the future, but I mean even if that's true, do you think that that uh, means that they wouldn't have the capacity for foresight or that they just, I mean, have it, but, but just happen to not talk mm. about the future, do not care yeah. so much about it, or perhaps that they are planning a shorter term and so that's why they don't really talk much about the future, but they still have the capacity. Mm. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, I've I've uh, followed that debate about around um, you know the, the the ostensible lack of something like recursion in uh, the Piraha language. As for the um, you know purported lack of you know, so let's assume that's true. Let's just regardless. I know there's a, a big debate about it, but let's assume it is true. Uh, I mean, just uh, to they, be yeah, clear, just to be about clear, speaking about the future. As opposed yeah, to recursion. It, yeah, it is speaking about it because I mean that yeah. probably doesn't. Um, lead, lead, uh, shouldn't lead us to the conclusion that they do not think about it at all, I guess. So. Yeah, it, oh, that's that way. And that would be my point of uh, exactly that the um, the lack of if you don't speak about the future that that's still I, I really I don't think it's irrelevant, but it's uh, it certainly wouldn't lead me to think that those the people are, you know, incapable of thinking about the future or are, are unable to prepare and plan because they clearly are right. Hunt, being a hunter gatherer, requires a huge amount of preparation and planning and um the, you know you could just choose any number of examples even something like starting a fire and keeping a fire going you've got to provision the materials in advance you have to practice the ability to do it you have to you know maintain the flames you have to take the materials with you next time uh you know that all of these things are incredibly sophisticated in terms of the cognitive machinery that goes on to achieve uh the kind of organized life that is mm -hmm. essential to a hunter-gatherer uh, existence and so um yeah i mean it whether as for the question about what the what the lack of um speaking about it reveals i think it might be revealing to just linger for a moment on the idea that foresight it's not necessarily either a linguistic exclusively linguistic process or some kind of a visuospatial ability instead if you define it as something like the ability to imagine personally relevant future events that might occur and the ability to organize action in light of that, 
then you can do it visuospatially. Uh, so you could, you know, and in fact, when you ask people, yes, a lot of people are doing it visuospatially. And so um, there's individual variation, essentially, in how people think about the future. It's not necessarily that every single person will, will do it with language or, you know, with, uh, with imagery. Uh, instead, there's a, you know, a whole mix of different ways that people do it. Uh, and all of those work together to enable the kind of sophistication that you need to organize your life, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also some cultural variation as well, right? Because, I mean, I, 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 I remember about uh, reading about studies where they asked, for example, Eastern Asians and Western people to represent uh, time uh, on a piece of paper, for example. And uh, it seems that Eastern Asians think about time more vertically and we think about time running more horizontally or and stuff like that right uh, yeah, I mean, the, those are the, cultural differences it doesn't sure. really matter if people think about time one way or the other especially they still they're still able to think about the future so. yeah i mean i think at the end of the day it can be clarifying to realize that as far as natural selection cares as far as evolution is concerned it's it's actually action it's the behavioral outcome of the cognitive yeah. process that it can be selected for And so um, much of the empirical research, for example, to try and understand whether other animals have the ability to think about the future, that's the fulcrum of the research. It's like, do they actually behave in ways that demonstrates an ability to prepare for a future that they may have imagined? Obviously, it's we can't we don't have access to what they're actually thinking about. But I, I would say the same is true cross-culturally. You'd have an enormous amount of variation in all the symbolism at- attached to, to thinking about time. Uh, you know, you might represent it, you, you use hand gestures to represent it in different ways. You represent it spatially or based on, you know, coordinates or based on your own point of reference. Uh, you might talk about it differently. You might have you might have no words for time or for, for future for the future. Uh, ultimately, uh, the proof is in the pudding of behavior like the, the, the preparatory behaviors are absolutely essential. And they are clearly in every single human group on the planet. Uh, there's a sophisticated degree of foresight um, and future-directed behavior that uh, is, you know, basically very different from anything you see even in our closest living animal relatives, the chimps. But when it comes to other animals, uh, yeah. particularly particularly looking at some predators like lions and others, mm-hmm. I mean, when a lion is preparing to hunt a zebra or some other animal, I mean, it seems that at least to some extent it is looking ahead because it it sort of predicts or tries to predict the movements of the, of its prey, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, so exactly, and prediction is is absolutely integral to brain function. I mean, if you're if you're a lion hunting a gazelle uh, and you're always just reactive. You know, completely reactive, you know, waiting for the gazelle to do something and then only then acting, uh, you're not going to catch any gazelles. And so, um, yeah, prediction is absolutely integral to to uh, even even so far down as like, you know, the sensory system. The sensory system is like biologically adapted to kind of get one step ahead and always kind of predict the incoming sensory signals. And then as far as action is concerned, yes, animals have very sophisticated future directed capacities, pl- you know, planning uh, with regards to hunting, um, you know, in chimps, chimpanzees, for example, you see, uh, you know, te- collaborative hunting. Uh, you see this in, in orcas and, and other animals. Um, but 
you know, and we can we can talk about where to sort of where the boundaries lie, like between non-human animal planning and, and future directed behavior and then the kind of foresight that that we're referring to when we talk about human um the human imagination mm -hmm. uh there's not like a hard line and 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 the point one of the points we make in the book and that thomas sudendorf um who, the co-author on the book has made before is that the apparent gap between the human mind and the mind of all other animals is actually a bit of an illusion based on the fact that all of the intermediary hominins have gone extinct and so now mm -hmm. between you've got chimpanzees here and you've got humans here with all of our sophisticated technologies and skyscrapers and space stations mm -hmm. And it looks really stark, but in fact, if it's slightly illusory, because if you had all of the inter intermediary species uh, that are now extinct, then the gap would not look so qualitative. Uh, you'd you'd, under you'd be able to see it with a bit more clarity. And certainly, there are other uh, an array of animal models we can look into to try to find. Um, I mean, some evolutionary precursors to first sight, or at least to some of the psychological mechanisms that give rise to foresight. Right. Definitely. Um, Malcolm McIver has made a really interesting argument that even so, so you know, go way back in evolutionary time, mm. you try and understand well what were, what were some of the first predictive mechanisms in uh, you know in our in our lineage, and he he makes the argument that the transition from water to land in in uh, over evolutionary time was a, a major major uh, um, milestone because basically what that does once you move on to land you're now no longer having an obscured field of vision by the distortion caused by water now you have much more spatial range of vision which and what comes with that spatial range it comes uh, additional time to prepare and so now there's an evolutionary selective pressure in developing the planning mechanisms mm -hmm. involved in, for example, identifying a a predator in mm -hmm. advance of them attacking you mm -hmm. and making movements to, for example, evade that predator. And right. so now you can now you see the origins of things like, you know, the, the planning systems, neuro, uh, neurobiological planning mechanisms that enable you to evade predators or seek out uh, food, uh, which might be obscured, you know, by in a, in a kind of complex uh, land environment, but yeah, just simply having the additional field of vision and the time to prepare is just an example of the kind of evolutionary pressure. And um, and there's been a lot of fascinating work done, basically, on the kind of neurobiology of planning um, in even you know for, for in rats, for example. So mm -hmm. you know you can see that that rats will have certain um, uh, neurological activity which seems to represent the movement of the animal down a path and into a possible future for example down two alternative sides of a maze where you know there might be some banana hidden something like that and so yeah maze running and understanding the neurobiology of, of that kind of planning can be a really useful analog for the kinds of planning that humans do um, with that said the kind of planning that we do can be just you know astronomically more sophisticated um, you know, planning for retirement, for example, you don't see anything remotely like that uh, in rats. Yeah, <laughs> it would be weird because they also don't use money nor nor have any <laughs> other any of the other institutions we have. But anyway, yeah. Um, also, but but can we say that any other animal also has foresight as a capacity, or at least some I don't know proto 
foresight or the way you classify this capacity turns it into uh, uniquely human? I mean, to some to some degree, that's a, an argument about semantics. Like, you know, whether you if you call it foresight in in uh, in the te- in the sense that we're defining it. Um, but yeah, I think there's absolutely no doubt that other animals have sophisticated, future-directed um, cognitive processes. They display various kinds of behaviors, which uh, you know seem far-sighted. And and yes, uh, they do. Uh, they have a lots of activity like that. Um, whether they have the same kind of foresight that we have, the answer is no. Uh, basically, they don't like the the, the uh, our argument in the book, at least, is that um, foresight is one of the things that sets humans apart. Uh, you don't see the the kind of foresight that humans have in any other animals. That's not to say that they don't have other like analogous abilities. Uh, but and, and as I mentioned before, the quali- the potential qualitative difference there is somewhat illusory just by the fact that the, the intermediary species have gone extinct. Um, yeah. But uh, even though those intermediary species have gone extinct, do we know anything about them, about how they thought mm. about the future, how they planned ahead, and all of that? Yeah, there's some great um, tantalizing clues in like the archaeological record. So take uh, you know one of our famous forebears, Homo erectus. Uh, there's there's evidence that Homo erectus, you know, they're often associated with these Aculean stone tools, kind of alluded to them at the start of the conversation. The tool itself, uh, you know, for people who might not know, it's basically a it's a teardrop shaped stone hand axe, um, which is chipped down so that the sides are very sharp on both uh, on both sides. And it's used for things like, you know, digging, skinning is a multifunction tool. That tool requires a very sophisticated amount of planning in a few different ways. One of them is that even when in, in contemporary studies, they get basically undergrads to try and teach them how to make these tools. It takes you know dozens and dozens of hours of training to achieve the technique required to make these tools. And so the implication there is that there's some degree of either dedicated personal learning to attempt to develop the skill, which implies some foresightful practice, mm. or there's teaching, uh, maybe both where you know the the teacher sits down and attempts to transfer knowledge that they have now that the mm. learner does not have but would later benefit from so in both mm. cases there's a degree of foresight there then there's actually just simply sitting down to make such a tool you have to you start with a piece of rock right mm-hmm. so there's an imagination component there you have to in the mind's eye create a model of the anticipated outcome of the behaviors that you're about to enact to produce the final product, which you can then use for various functions. And the other thing is, this is not just a tool you're going to, let's say you you suddenly need to, to use, you're not going to sit down and make it like right there and then in an urgent situation. It's made, they're made in advance. And like I mentioned earlier, there's evidence that they were made and then transported for repeated use. And so Aculean hand axes associated with Homo erectus, that's a, a you know, a good line of evidence that yes they had the ability to think ahead um Mm -hmm. the exact extent of that is kind of hard to establish so for example they may have had all sorts of other tools made of perishable materials that we just have no access to now sure Uh, and so you you might be we might be vastly underestimating the 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 amount of foresight involved and conversely maybe these tools uh, are not as uh, difficult to make as as we assume because they could do it 
some other way. So, for example, maybe they had some inbuilt cognitive machinery that mm -hmm. pre-prepared them to do it. I don't favor that view. I would say it's probably more likely that these tools are genuine evidence of uh, quite sophisticated foresight in Homo erectus. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's just an example, but you basically can choose any of these other species and you can start to get a sense uh, largely from from evidence from from tools uh, about how they were thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. So one thing I haven't asked you about yet is the neuroscience of all of this. So what do mm. we know about the neuroscience of foresight? Yeah, so one of the very interesting things is that foresight and memory appear to rely on many of the same neuro uh, neurobiological uh, much of the same neurobiological machinery so mm. uh, if you think about there are some some famous case studies in the literature where people uh, an individual might lose uh, they might have damaged their hippocampus for example which mm -hmm. is famously involved in memory right. uh, specifically episodic memory so memory for the personal episodes of one's life yeah uh, well in such cases those there's also a corresponding deficit to the ability to imagine uh personal future events that might occur as well. So there's a kind of um, uh, two sides of the same coin here where the ability to remember specific episodes from one, one's past and imagine future episodes from, uh, imagine possible future uh, if episodes in, occurring in one's life in the future, uh, they, they seem to go kind of come hand in hand. Um, and so there's been a lot of really interesting work basically on, on trying to characterize the specific neural machinery involved and um, my collaborator uh, and supervisor who I worked with at Harvard, Daniel Schachter, has been one of the people involved in, in doing some of these, you know, a lot of really interesting neuroimaging work on looking at, you know, if you put people in a brain scanner and you get them to imagine the past and then you get them to imagine the, the future. So remember the past, imagine the future. Mm -hmm. Many of the same parts of the brain are active in those two conditions. Uh, and so there's a kind of core network involved in mental time travel in both directions. That's very interesting, but uh, do we know why those two abilities, I mean, I'm not sure if they are two completely separate abilities, but remembering the, uh, remembering the past and planning for the future or foresight are so connected? I mean, does it have anything to do with the fact that um, if we uh, learned something then that learning and of course if we have learned we have to remember something from our past uh, helps helps us plan for the future because we might take into account more information and know more about how things might play out how things might develop and stuff and basically play out more scenarios in our minds yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. I, I think basically one way to think about it is that the way that we imagine the future is by combining and recombining elements from our memories and mm. putting them into novel constellations, uh, you know, reconfiguring all the different bits and pieces so that you can imagine something that might happen in the future based on what you've experienced thus far. And ultimately, what else could you use? You know, if you're trying to imagine the future, the raw material for that is going to come from your memories. Uh, yeah. And so it, the argument uh, in the book and elsewhere is that um, memory systems themselves 
Uh, yes, they can have their own particular functions, but one really important function of an episodic memory system, you know, a, a system that enables you to remember specific episodes from your life is actually in what it gives you when it comes to preparing for the future, because it enables you, it gives you the raw material for uh, imagining what might happen rather than specifically remembering what did. And so that can help us get a, a kind of a better sense of the failures of memory as well because if you start to realize that well memory is not actually there to, to really like incorruptibly record what's happened before it's actually more about what it gives you for preparing for the future and the key thing is flexibility uh, then the errors of memory make a bit more sense uh, uh, and, and you know just to, just to put a fine point on that like the yeah. when i say creativity what i really mean there and is is re with regards to imagining the future it's not really just so useful to transplant a specific memory into the future and imagine that what happened last time is what's going to happen next time. That can be useful, but the, the more useful thing is to be able to flexibly combine stuff from the past and imagine alternative ways the future could play out. That's really where you get more bang for your buck in terms of preparation. So by studying foresight, we might also be opening some new avenues into understanding memory a bit better. Yeah, I think so, definitely, and and that that has uh, borne fruit, uh, you know, over the last um, you know dec two decades basically. Yeah. And so, you know, who I work, the, the the person I work with at the University of Sydney, Murren Irish, has done some fascinating work, for example, on um, people with dementia. And so, dementia, you know, classically is thought about as a disorder of memory, and of course, it is a disorder of memory. And what you find is that there's uh, progressive deterioration during this um, neurodegenerative disease to the hippocampus, at least initially, and then it spreads. Um, well, there's also what, what Marin has, has demonstrated, uh, and along with various collaborators over the years, is that you find corresponding deficits in imagining the future that, that also occur in dementia syndromes. Uh, and so that's an example of where the study of, of um, foresight and memory have led to new insights uh, once you start to treat them as essentially two sides of the same coin. By the way, people with dementia, or at least some forms of dementia, also have trouble with foresight, correct? Exactly, yeah. So that's that's exactly what I mean. Is it's that the, there's a kind of um, the the deficit affects both the ability mm -hmm. to remember the past and prepare for the future, uh, imagine and prepare for the future. And in fact, when you think about it. The, the inability to imagine the future could be uh, a much more detrimental symptom because mm -hmm. it's uh, in some ways, it, you know, obviously it's completely debilitating to and, and uh, very sad to lose your personal memories. Mm -hmm. But in terms of your functions in your everyday life and your kind of instrumental activities of daily living, the ability to anticipate what you need and and to act towards those goals, when that is affected, that can really lead to uh, difficulties in, for example, independent function and um, daily living. And in that sense, that might also shed light on what we were talking about earlier when it comes to the sort of time horizon we think about when we think about foresight, because some of those people, at least in some of the more advanced stages of mm. dementia, can't even plan like uh, one minute ahead or sometimes even seconds ahead, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and as and these things are progressive neurodegenerative diseases, and mm -hmm. so you're you're exactly right that the um, there's a kind of uh, a time horizon issue there. I mean, in in some of the, in the most severe cases of, for example, amnesia due to um, specific neurological insult or damage, you know, for example, to the hippocampus, you can you can see, for example, the the English pianist and musician Clive Wearing. He he uh, he really was in in the order of seconds. His consciousness became fairly uh, restricted to remembering only in the order of a, of a few seconds, and correspondingly planning only a few seconds into the future. You know, ba basically living in this kind of perpetual present. That's yeah. oversimplifying it, because yeah. um, one thing to bear in mind is that what's uh, one of the most interesting findings from some of these. Uh, both the studies with dementias and the studies with people um, with brain damage mm -hmm. uh, from other causes is that other types of memory and correspondingly other kinds of foresight are actually left uh, unaffected when you know you can basically see a dissociation. So for example, there's um, a famous patient who goes by KC in the literature who lost his episodic memories. So he couldn't mm -hmm. remember, for example, being you know it is youth spent driving dune buggies and playing in a rock band and he right. also couldn't imagine himself doing he couldn't imagine what might happen to him personally tomorrow or the next day but he still knew things about his life he still right. could he could still state facts and he could also state facts about the future so he could say things like he knew that climate change might affect low-lying coastal communities in the future and so that just reveals that there's a kind of dis there's a dissociation in the mechanisms of of mental time travel where it's not like a one size fits all thing. Instead, there's dissociations and different cognitive mechanisms. Uh, you know, you might have the semantic facts on one side and the, the episodic, yeah, you know, actual the episodes on the other. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. So in the case of uh, foresight, particularly and in dementia in general, uh, is it that uh, episodic memory is the only type or usually the only type of memory affected? So, for example, do still people re uh, retain their semantic memories and procedural memories? So, for example, they might not remember that they have already had breakfast or they have to have breakfast because they forgot right. to have it. But if they sit down uh, and... Uh, try to eat, they can still use a fork, a knife, a, a spoon and so on, and they perhaps can remember some uh, facts, like for example, Paris is the capital of France or something like Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. Episodic memory is the one that is affected the most. Is that it? So, the initial work, the theoretical work, distinguishing between semantic memory on the one hand, so memories for facts, and episodic memory on the other mm -hmm. hand, memory for episodes, was actually in large part inspired by studies of people with uh, specific neurological insults, damage to particular parts of the brain, who selectively lost one or the other. And so it is possible to lose one or the other. And as for dementia, uh, there's it depends actually on the type of dementia. So okay. uh, Maren Irish, who I already mentioned, she's worked both with patients, and the, the lab that I'm in now do a lot of work with both patients with Alzheimer's disease, which mm -hmm progressively affects the episodic memory system primarily first and mm -hmm. then things like uh, semantic dementia type of frontotemporal okay. dementia which actually affects the semantic memory base more 
uh, in the initial stages and progressively has effects on things like behavior. So it's actually, it, it's interesting. It, it, essentially, you can think about the, use these, these dementia case studies uh, as um, a window into understanding the different cognitive mechanisms involved uh, and using that to sort of understand that, yes, there is somewhat of a distinction. Of course, the reality is there's a lot of overlap. So if I want to imagine the future, yeah. I need both, ideally, semantic memory for facts as well as episodic memories of specific episodes in order to do that in a really effective way. So, for example, if I want to imagine going to watch a football game at a bar next week uh, because I'm, I've got that planned, well, then I it helps to know you know, semantic facts about where my, what the name of my favorite bar is and uh, which football team I support, uh, as well as the ability to actually put together a specific episode in my mind's eye about how do I get there? What am I going to do when I arrive? Where's my friend going to be waiting for me? Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, th and those two things are really, um, they're, they're much, they're much, uh, they're very closely related, despite the fact that you can dissociate them in some particular cases. Mm -hmm. So when studying foresight, it's not just episodic memory that matters, but memory in general, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, and you mentioned procedural memory as well. That's another mm -hmm. thing. Uh, you know, you can you can lose uh, episodic memory, and the procedural memory can be completely untouched. So mm -hmm. Clive Wearing, who we mentioned already, the English uh, pianist, um, he can still play the piano. Yeah. You know, just despite despite having no memory of ever having played a piano no episodic memory. Uh, he knows what, you know, he knows what a piano is and he can actually still play one, but he cannot remember, for example, conducting a choir uh, or playing a piano in a specific personal event from his life. And the same thing, I guess, happens with language sometimes. People can still speak and uh, comprehend language, but they might not remember how they learned their own language right yeah absolutely um and so yeah no that's exactly right and you can, so you can lose for example the um the memory for the source of some piece of information mm -hmm. uh, let's say then you know if I, you, you don't you presumably don't remember learning uh you know what the capital of france is but you still have the memory of the word paris yeah yeah, yeah that's very interesting and uh, i mean uh, that is mostly about how people lose memory in cases like dementia and all of that. But yeah. what about uh, how normal or how human memory normally works? Because our memories are not perfectly accurate, right? I mean, we misremember things all the time. Sometimes we rewrite some of our memories by adding new information and stuff like that. So. Uh, does that matter, the fact that our memories are not perfectly accurate to how our foresight functions or not? Yeah, and in, in some ways you can actually think of the the errors of memory, and this is a point I alluded to earlier, as, as one of the things that actually makes foresight so powerful. Because if memory was really strict uh, and couldn't be combined and recombined in creative new ways, then uh, it might be much more difficult to imagine the future creatively. And there's a, t there's a kind of a, t a tension there, a balance between how creative you really want to be when imagining mm -hmm. the future in, and in memory, right? So in memory, uh, we are pretty, we're pretty, um, 
we can be pretty creative when we're trying to remember what has happened to us. And it's often in ways that are very self-serving. So, you know, if I, I, I tend to, we tend to remember things in a way that paints us in a good light. And there's a, there's a, an element of self-deception in the way that we remember the past. Um, well, so, let me tell yeah. you, unless, <laughs> unless people suffer from conditions like depression, because right. in, in those cases, people usually tend to exaggerate the negative aspects of their past. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, correspondingly, you can see kind of, um, you can see some bias and some creativity and some differences in how we imagine the future. It's not like we're perfect. We're not like, you know, trying to perfectly model exactly what the future is, is going to hold. Instead, it has to be good enough to guide actions that will lead us to goals that we want to pursue mm -hmm. and sometimes the best way to, to achieve a goal is not to actually represent the future accurately it's to represent the future in a way that will motivate other people to help you make it happen and so um one for example one idea there is that if I, if i'm trying to recruit you to help me to do something uh whether consciously or not i might exaggerate the benefits that that was that would bring us no, it's going to be really good. Like, just trust me. Let you know you're gonna. It's going to be amazing. And so, I might come to actually envisage the future in in a very overly optimistic way. Uh, it's useful not just for you for for recruiting you to join me, but it's it could also be useful for uh, my own mental health, my own um, you know attempts to actually achieve things. And so, optimism is just an example of where like there can be a, a kind of um, a flourish, let's say, in the way that we imagine the future that de deviates from the precise accuracy that you yeah. would expect if you, if you know, if a lawyer designed it or something. Uh, and that might also tie to literature on uh, overconfidence, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people, uh, people to be motivated enough to do something have to experience some sort of overconfidence and think more of themselves than they really are at the present moment. And then, I mean, down the line, that might turn into a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Because that's, people that's were exactly motivated right. yeah. enough to mm. do stuff. Right. Exactly. And so there's interesting, lots of interesting work on overconfidence, some of which is, uh, you know, modeling. So you do computational models you put a bunch of agents into an environment, some of which are overconfident, some of which are representing reality exactly correctly. And uh, there are, you know, under certain assumptions about the nature of the world that the agents are interacting in, overconfidence can be the evolutionarily stable strategy, the more successful strategy. Uh, so, for example, an overconfident agent might be more likely to enter into a conflict where it can achieve some objective where a underconfident agent would... Um, run away and not get the the outcome the food for example um, but too much overconfidence can also be completely uh, problematic right so you can see this you can see a balancing act there and this this comes back to our kind of key point about foresight which is that yes it's creative yes it's inventive you, you are you know the title of our book is the invention of tomorrow yes you are cooking it up in your mind's eye but it's a very constrained kind of imagination it's not the same as imagining something completely fictitious it, it okay. uses much of the same cognitive and neural machinery as that yeah. but it's constrained it's an attempt to actually get a handle on what the future holds and there can be some deviations we just mentioned some like overconfidence or over optimism but ultimately the utility of this system comes from 
preparing you for what might happen in the future threats and opportunities mm -hmm. so yeah it's it is creative but it's it's constrained so another topic you explore yeah. in the book has to do with how foresight might have driven cultural evolution so right what's the link there the link there is that cultural evolution and for those who don't know that refers to the process by which people pass on useful ways of doing things to other people and that can spread culturally through a population leading to sophisticated solutions to life's problems mm -hmm. that is not completely blind uh, in the way that maybe some people might uh, be tempted to think of it um, instead it, there's a lot of foresight involved in a few ways two that we highlight in the book first is in the actual innovation of new ideas so for example I inherit something from you you teach me how to do something well now I use my personal foresight to anticipate ways that this could be better than it is now this solution that you've given me to some problem that I have and so mm -hmm. I come up with an alternative way of doing it or I foresee some other problem that I'm having where I can apply this same thing and so mm -hmm. recognition the recognition of the future utility of some solution to a problem that involves foresight at the individual level Yeah. And then let's say I want to pass that on to somebody else. Well, teaching, as we already talked about earlier, has an element of foresight in it because it involves representing the mind of somebody else, realizing that they lack some skill, but that over time they could acquire it if I teach them how to do it uh, and shape their mind towards that expertise that they need to acquire. And so uh, those are just those are two ways in which cultural evolution is is actually facilitated by foresight. And in turn, cultural evolution produces practices, technologies, artifacts, and environments that feed back to, you know, put put new pressure and and on the very mechanisms that brought them about in the first place. So, for example, the cultural invention of uh, fire, uh, where individual people come up with different ways of doing it and improve it. Yep. Now, if the if a new person is born into an environment. And, and ecology where fire exists, well, that feature of the environment now has select puts selective pressure on me to make better to make use of that resource. So, for example, to come up with new ways to utilize it. Okay, oh, maybe I could use it to smoke prey out of a burrow. Mm -hmm. uh, that idea would have been pointless. That far-sighted idea would have got you nowhere. If you didn't actually have the fire, uh, and so that's just an example of where the, cult, the cultural evolutionary process produces artifacts in the environment, which then feed back to put selective pressure in evolutionary over evolutionary time, both in, via natural selection and via cultural evolution, uh, on foresight and and the processes of cultural um, knowledge sharing and acquisition that that brought it into effect. Uh, but just to be clear, you're not yeah. claiming here that people were able or are able to direct cultural evolution in particular ways. That is, we, uh, we are not able to, for example, predict or make happen that because we uh, found out that we can plant seeds, that we will develop agriculture, and because of that we'll develop states, and all of that. I mean, that's a hugely massive 
prediction and no one single individual or collective can do that, right? I mean, we can't plan that far ahead and on that kind of scale, right? So a couple of things to say there. First is, uh, yes, you're right. That's an important caveat. It's like the, the kind of foresight, the role of foresight in cultural evolution that we are envisaging is the, the kind of, it's in the, the, um, the mutation, so to speak, of the ideas in an individual person's brain when they're attempting to solve a problem actively. And it's in the transmission of that idea from person to person. So it's fairly small scale. With that said, uh, yet yeah, people do shape and design and attempt to guide cultural evolution. Uh, and so it's, it's really not a, a quite as blind as you might think. So for example, if a science fiction writer envisages a future where you know we go and, and colonize Mars, mm -hmm. that can actually itself act as a kind of spur to produce the behaviors and the new ideas that are needed to actually make that happen. And so I think on some level, yes, actually, cultural evolution can be guided directly by the foresight of individual people. Okay, yeah. so with that in mind, let me ask you another kind of question. So in this case, when it comes to foresight, uh, do the outcomes matter that much there is? So, for example, if someone puts the idea out there that we could or should colonize Mars and some people try to do something with it, mm -hmm. but uh, because they do, uh, don't really have control or don't really know the many different, uh, mul the multitude of ways people interact in society and the, the technological, the cultural, the scientific limitations and all of that, and they can't predict uh, mm -hmm. how technology will develop and all of that, it ends up not happening. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that does not mean that uh, it's not part of foresight, that the outcome didn't really come about. I mean, it's just the planning and the conceiving of the idea itself. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, I think you can exactly. So you can only really judge that retrospectively once the thing is actually played out, right? You can say, like, did it work? And um, I think that obviously matters in the sense in, in many ways, like in terms of how we assign responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, if if I could have foreseen the negative consequences of my actions, but I chose to proceed anyway, then people will judge me more harshly if the thing goes wrong than if right. I had just simply failed to foresee what could have, what, you know, all the bad outcomes. So, um, yeah, in that sense, the, the outcome matters. But on, on the other sense, which I think more what you were getting at, if someone in the moment is envisaging multiple different possible futures, they are still using foresight yeah. and they're still attempting to bring something into uh, into fruition. The outcome is is really kind of out of their hands at that point. Like they can they can try, but the future is not... It doesn't always go, you know, like famously, uh, life has other plans for us than what we might have uh, been setting out to do. And in fact, that's a really important point. Like our foresight is really limited. Uh, as powerful as we think it is and as important in the human story, it is also incredibly limited, partly by just the fact that the future hasn't happened yet. It's unwritten. And so our foresight is always ever, it's, it's only ever guessing uh about what might happen uh, we don't we cannot have certainty over it yeah i asked you that question because uh, 
Uh, I mean, some people, uh, when we're talking about the role that foresight might play in cultural evolution, uh, people like sociologists, anthropologists and other might think, oh, but I mean, that's sort of uh, silly because it's impossible for people to really plan societies because things change. And I mean, of people course. don't really have control over uh, the ecological conditions they live in that changes the social conditions, the political, the economic conditions and all of that. So, I mean, uh, someone thinking about uh, having an idea like, oh, so we're going Going to develop agriculture and then we will evolve into states with kings and all of that. I mean, someone could have had that idea, but they, yeah, of but... course, wouldn't know how they would arrive there or no. how they could <laughs> plan that far ahead. But yeah. that doesn't invalidate at all the fact that foresight might still be playing a role in cultural evolution, but we have to sort of have a clear picture of its role right and not, not... yeah exactly and the role is uh smaller scale than than yeah. uh, you know uh, you know with but with that said uh, as i mentioned already that you know clearly people plot revolutions they attempt yeah, to sure. uh, you know overthrow governments they have grand designs and sometimes it works uh, and it's really only in hindsight, I agree, that you can you can say one way or the other. That does not invalidate the causal role of foresight mm -hmm. in cultural change. Um, it, it really doesn't. Um, yeah. Uh, and okay, so what about the other way around? So we're all the time developing new technologies, new aspects of our culture, new cultural tools and all of that. So in what ways might cultural artifacts enhance our foresight? The, can that also happen? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I gave the example of um, the invention of fire, you know, just a moment ago. That's that's an example of a kind of uh, an artifact or an invention that then has effects on our uh, our foresight. But that's a kind of a you know, roundabout way of looking at it. That's a it's niche construction in the sense that something that's yeah. produced then feeds yeah. back to affect the yeah. Um, but there's also more obvious ones like things like the design of uh, calendars, where right. it's a cultural artifact. It's invented by people who share it, refine it, steal it from one another, improve it, make it better, different, and it propagates in thousands of different ways across the vast span of human cultures, uh, and obviously once you have a calendar in front of you and it's a feature mm. of your environment now the way that you use your foresight is going to be different uh, because for example you and i can now agree to meet up at a particular on a particular date as opposed to just saying i'll see you again in the future uh, or something like that obviously you find oral calendars as well and so when i'm saying pointing at something like this it doesn't have to be an object it can be a, a concept it's an invention nonetheless that you and I share, it can be orally transferred between us and used to help orchestrate our activities and organize our lives. So that's mm -hmm. a, you know, that's an invention, cultural invention, which has enormous implications for how we utilize our foresight. Um, there's some other ones which are a bit more quirky, like, you know, one of the things we talk about, we, have, we dedicate a section of our book to um, bags and mobile carrying containers. And um, we've, you know, Thomas uh, Sudendorf and Michelle Langley, the archaeologists, have made the argument that bags are, are really critical because what they do is enable you to offload uh, the, the, the task of carrying devices with you into the future 
uh, and enable you to prepare not just a single tool, but instead a toolkit. And so bags, uh, once you have a bag, once you've invented that device, now there is now an actual incentive to prepare you know, multiple mutually exclusive tools in advance to tackle the array of possible futures that, that lie ahead of you. Before the bag, uh, there simply wasn't the benefit to be gained from devising and creating multiple tools because you just couldn't carry them. Uh, so that's just an example, a couple of examples of where the artifacts change the cognitive process. Well, let me just tell you that I had never thought about bags <laughs> that way. Neither, I mean, uh, yeah, Thomas, Thomas was when 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 we were first uh, working on the book, and Thomas was thinking a lot about this. I uh, admit to a degree of skepticism about the whole bags thing, but uh, eventually he won me over, and we actually had to tone down that section in the end. We had some some early, some early readers were like, no, the rest of the book is 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 good, and it has a kind of skepticism through it, and. But that the bags chapter, the bags uh, section was really like over the top. <laughs> so eventually, you know, toned down the whole bags thing. But yeah, I think it's it's partly because, um, you know, it's very tempting to think about the human evolutionary story in terms of our weapons and our tools and the fire and the fighting and the and all these cool things. Uh, and a bag seems just like fairly humble and and maybe uh, not that important. But I think arguably it's one of, if not the most important. Uh, technological innovation uh, that our species has ever devised. Yeah, I mean, it's just that there are others that w seem more obvious, like uh, fire, yeah. fire, stone tools, the printing press, the internet, the washing machine, but yeah. bags, I mean, do not bags. come to mind immediately. No. But they are everywhere, right? If you start thinking yeah. about it and looking for them, um, bags, you know, maybe broadening it out slightly, it's just you know, mobile carrying containers are just absolutely integral to our society, uh, to our civilizations. Like if you didn't have a way to transport materials and even people, uh, like we, there's no way we would have become the, the species that we are today with such an enormous amount of ecological dominance. I mean, one of the things to, with the risk of, you know, waxing on too much about it, that one of the things that a bag enables you to do is basically create like a mobile, a portable life support system. Um, other animals have to adapt basically through natural selection to not to new uh, ecological circumstances. But we can prepare tools, clothing, items, artifacts in advance, put them in a bag and take them to a new environment where we can then establish ourselves. And if you look at um, the kind of the, the, the way that human beings spread out over the entire planet, we're also using mobile containers to actually transport ourselves over water because a boat is essentially, it involves much of the same kind of conceptual thinking, which is that, oh, you can take an object, you can shape it in such a way, and then you can use it to transport people and items with you uh, into a new area. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's absolutely critical in, in all of those different ways. Yeah, uh, so you also in the book talk a little bit about the role that foresight might have played in the development of the modern era. Uh, and by mm -hmm. modern era, we mean, I mean, what basically we've had since the Enlightenment in what are now industrialized and post-industrial societies mostly. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Maybe the the most um, clear illustration of the reason of why foresight has been so important in recent history is with regards to the 
uh, invention of science. So science is, it really has foresight at its core because scientists ultimately are in the business of, you know, making predictions uh, and depending on what kind of philosophy of science you subscribe to, attempting to falsify those predictions. Uh, and in, from some schools, in some schools of thought, really science, the success of any scientific uh, school of thought, it comes from its ability to make predictions about what the future holds. That's like the ultimate litmus test for where, whether a scientific theory uh, is good, is that it enables you to predict what the future holds. Uh, and so obviously when you take that point of view, then uh, foresight has been really integral because science has been so important in the, the shaping of our modern world. Um, but you can look broad, more broadly than, than that and you can say, well, really attempts to control the future have been central to basically all of the major technological upheavals that we've experienced. You know, attempts, you take aviation, for example. Um, people have envisaged attempting to, to fly for thousands of years and actually attempted to then make that a reality. Uh, and that doesn't happen if you don't have the foresight to, first of all, envisage what you're actually trying to achieve and then persist in the pursuit of that goal, despite competing demands on your time and energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, that's the, that's the kind of conceptual foundation for trying to, to try and say, okay, well, foresight has been really uh, critical here. So on one, in one sense, foresight has been really key to driving us towards the Anthropocene. Uh, and the reason we even kind of, one of the things that makes, that we think makes the book kind of urgent in this um, time and place is that like foresight got us here, but it's it's literally the, the only thing that's going to enable us to steer into a better future moving forwards. Uh, and so the use of foresight now, trying to get to understand the limits and the strengths and the powers and the origins of this ability is going to be useful because we need to get better at it uh, to sort of tackle some of the big challenges that, that lie ahead of us, essentially. Mm -hmm. By the way, in modern industrialized and post-industrial societies because we have things like formal education, jobs, careers, planning for retirement and all of right. that. Do you think that in this sort of social and cultural context, our time horizons have expanded in any way in comparison to more traditional societies like forager societies, horticultural societies, and that sort of thing? It's really tricky uh, to say that. I mean, on one, in certain ways, yes, because you, you know, with really sophisticated science, you can do things like, for example, predict that, uh, you know, an, a transit of Venus is going to occur in thousands of years. And so, yeah, the time horizon there is massive. And without the uh, specific, you know, uh, theories of the planetary bodies and, and understanding uh, the the detailed astronomy involved there, you couldn't do that. Um, but on the other hand, um, many people have made the argument that our current era is one of, at least in, in many of our, uh, like in Western countries, like an era of incredible short-termism. So uh, a giant um, preponderance of short-term goals in, for example, the democratic election cycles incentivizing politicians to look no further than you know a few a few months into the future uh, when they could be trying to make you know really big uh, impacts that could affect future generations or the short term is in, involved in scrolling through uh, an algorithm you know a tick tock or instagram or something which is like algorithmically designed 
to keep you uh, operating with an attention span in the in the order of seconds. Mm-hmm. So you know, from in, from these points, it's so in in essence, it's complicated. Like there are some ways in which our current era incentivizes long-term thinking, and there's other ways in which it it might um, heavily incentivize us to focus really on the here and now. Uh, and so I think it's a there's a you know the basically we have a great opportunity now to harness foresight to do some, do something good with it, like to make a future worth looking forward to is something we've we've written elsewhere because it is such a powerful ability. Like it is the thing that's going to enable us to design design the future to to uh, meet our own goals and desires. Um, but it has a lot of flaws, and so there's a, a lot of ways it could go wrong. And just to to put a final point on that, it also is not necessarily good. You know, so foresight can be used for absolutely evil purposes. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, some of the most yeah, far, some of the most far-sighted schemes in history are also the most evil ones. Uh, and so yeah, you cannot equate foresight and wisdom. So it's really about using this tool uh, for the good and, and how to do that. And perhaps one very very clear example of the limits of our foresight ability is climate change. Right. I mean, because it's not, uh, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that people live in in societies where they might already be usually planning decades into the future. Like, for example, when it comes to retirement plans and all of that are not well equipped to thinking about issues and dealing with issues like climate change. Right. One of the things to bear in mind there is that you know, if you're in an environment that's where it's, it's really hostile and uncertain and so on, it's not that you're necessarily short-sighted or something if you don't plan for the future and invest in you know re- renewable energy and stuff. Instead, it's the environmental context kind of basically incentivizing you to use your foresight to realize that the payoffs in the future are unlikely to materialize mm. or that I might not be around to actually benefit from them. And so. Um, that's a, again the foresight is a it's a tricky one like people can use their foresight to prioritize the present uh, and just and get what they can now and so really one of the one of the interesting um, consequences of that line of thought is that if you want people to care more about the long-term future of our planet and invest in um, you know the climate crisis and tackling other long-term problems don't target their foresight instead improve their material conditions so that they're in, you're actually able to use that foresight to to look out you know and and, and harness it to to tackle these problems uh, it's that the cognitive ability is there regardless uh, it's just the, the the ability and the choice and, and the preferences around what you use it for which will differ greatly depending on your um, circumstances essentially uh, but well, that's not to say that you can't target foresight as well it's just that you might get uh, better payoff ultimately from you know, other kind of systemic changes that then unlock the ability to put that foresight towards a good use um, more broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and talking about the circumstances people live in, I think is a very important point to make here. And this will be my last question, because I mean, sometimes when thinking about foresight, uh, people who have some some sort of political motivations might come up with, for example, we were just talking about people who live in industrialized and post-industrial societies might Mm -hmm. come up with sort of 
cultural superiority or sometimes racial superiority arguments claiming that, for example, people who live in more traditional societies do not think far right. at all or yeah, aren't yeah, yeah. able to plan for the future and all of that. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, even if there's a little bit of that in the ecological context they live uh, they still plan in a rational way, even if yeah, sometimes exactly. it's shorter term, right? Yeah, the behavior is the thing that, that differs in the end. But like I, I'll maintain that foresight is a universal human capacity that develops in essentially every healthily developing person. And then they use it for all kinds of different reasons and different ways. And I think the... The survey, a cursory survey of the archaeological literature, would you know lead people to realize this because it's something that you see evidence for you know advanced planning in um, you know as far back as like two million years ago. Uh, we've already talked about some of the lines of evidence that lead lead us to think that, and it's really hubristic to say something like oh that that hunter gatherers you know don't need to plan as much for the future because they're you know they don't have agriculture or whatever like it doesn't make any sense like it's so it involves so much foresight to to uh, exist in as a hunter gatherer the planning involved uh, you know on a day to day basis is just immense and so anyway i don't yeah i don't have much uh, time for those those arguments they just don't they just don't really make sense to me uh, and the the evidence for example that people discount the future more steeply uh, in environments that are more hostile can be very readily explained by a rational um, adoption of a behavioral policy that fits your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So uh, the book is again, The Invention of Tomorrow, A Natural History of Foresight. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Bully, uh, about your work specifically, because the book has been written also with Thomas Suddendorf and yeah. Jonathan Redshaw, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at Adam D. Bully, and uh, my website is uh, adambully.org, and I, I've got links to you know my various research papers and, and other stuff on there. Um, yeah, a lot of my work has been more in this kind of behavioral economics space about understanding how people make decisions and prioritize outcomes over time. And there is some of that in the book, um, mm -hmm. and we've touched on some of it today. But uh, if people are interested, um, there's there's more on, online. Okay, great. So thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. And I really loved our conversation. Yeah, likewise. I, that was really good. I, the, the questions really, uh, you know, got the gears turning and uh, really, really enjoyed it. And I'm a big, big fan of the show. So like, please keep it up. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. The links are in the description box of this interview. And if you like this interview, Please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. 
Karen Litzkan, Blanchett Berger, Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Herbert Gintis, Olaf Alec, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnaud Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavanagh, George Pinha, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dan Bauer, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nyers, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, John Weira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Danners Mani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stasebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Doug, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Morton Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Georgios Steofanis, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, João Barbosa, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigman, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, D. RPMD and Eager N. And special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniat, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Belnick Miller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alni Cortiz, and to my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.